Greetings, church. It's good to be with you. If this is your first time joining us online, my name is Greg and I am one of the pastors. And if you are joining us for the first time, we have been walking through Jesus' inaugural sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, and it is found in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5 and 6 and 7, and normally we would be starting in Matthew 6 today. And as a staff, we believe that the Sermon on the Mount is the best unit of study, the best section for us to be studying at this time as a church. Why is that? We have been discovering in the Sermon on the Mount that it is not about moral conformity to a new set of New Testament rules. That would be called moralism. Neither is it picking and choosing Bible passages that we think are relevant for today and leaving some others out. Thomas Jefferson made that mistake, and that's called secularism. The Sermon on the Mount is identifying a third way to live as a follower of Jesus. It's through the removal of our sin by God's grace through faith. It's through a restructuring of our hearts from the inside out. And it's through this whole reversal of values. We believe that's what's needed in the church today. So today I'd like for us to take some time and, and take what we've been seeing in the Sermon on the Mount and consider the events of the last few months, including the murder of George Floyd about 10 days ago, by asking the question, what is God trying to say to his church in this season? What is God trying to say to Community Covenant Church in this season? So with that said, please pray with me. Kind Father, we come before you. We open our hearts to you. I pray that you would be the primary instructor here, that you would teach us, that you would stir us as only you can. We ask that you would do what only you can. So we dedicate this time to you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's what I'd like to cover today. Over the years, I have found Nehemiah's response to crisis to demonstrate a very appropriate and godly pattern of engagement. And I'd like for us to look at highlights from that today, specifically chapter 1, which we've already heard. I also want to provide some specific action steps for us to take in the coming days and weeks and months and years, these action steps will be reinforced as we continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount. And I've also started a list of resources on our blog, on the website, church website. And finally, I want to share with you two defining moments from my life as a man, as a follower of Jesus, and as a pastor. Both of these defining moments happened when I was a permanent pastor of a church, one in the late 1980s and the other in the early 1990s. And I'll share the first one now, and I'll share the second one at the conclusion, just before we partake of the Lord's Supper together. So, 
In the early 90s, I became involved in a two-year racial reconciliation group of pastors from around our city. It was facilitated by a man named Spencer Perkins, the son of, of, the, of uh, John Perkins. Some of you will know that name. And Spencer, along with another guy named Chris Rice, led this. Spencer passed on in 1998, and Spencer and Chris and their families lived under one roof in community, and they led out in these different reconciliation groups. And so that's where it all started in our pastor's group. There were Anglo, Latino, African-American pastors, and a Japanese-American pastor. And that two-year time period became, in and of itself, a defining moment for me. But two different specific occasions were particularly impacting for me. One of the African-American pastors grew up on the East Coast, I think South Carolina. Another African-American pastor grew up on the West Coast in the outskirts of Los Angeles. They both grew up in Christian homes, and they both had the same experience. What was their experience? When they were growing up, they didn't believe that white people could be Christians because of the way that white people treated blacks. When I heard that in one of our sessions, my heart was broken. I couldn't believe that that was happening. And I don't know if I had ever heard the term institutional racism. Maybe we did back then. Maybe I hadn't. Or white privilege. I had never heard of those terms. But all of a sudden, I knew something was terribly wrong. Not only in me, but in the church and in our country. The other profound moment came on October 3rd, 1995. It was the day that O.J. Simpson was acquitted of the deaths of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, Ron Goldman. And you know what my first thought was when I heard, you know, I, I heard it live on TV or the radio or something. My first thought when I heard the verdict was, this is the tiniest glimpse of the repeated injustice that African Americans have been subjected to in this country for centuries. I saw a little sliver, a little glimpse of that injustice, and it, it had a profound effect on me. And these two related experiences were, were moments of profound clarity for me uh, that grew into a heart for reconciliation that has only become more impassioned over the years. The horrific video of George Floyd being murdered on the streets of Minneapolis is, I believe, symbolic of the United States of America having our collective knee on the necks of not only African American, but Native American, Latino American, and Asian American people in our country. Institutional or Systemic racism is a gruesome and undeniable stain on our national conscience. And I believe we need to own it as Americans. 
white privilege doesn't mean that the average white person hasn't needed to work hard for what we have attained. White privilege means that us white folks have, generally speaking, greater access to power and resources than people of color in our, than, our, uh, than people in our same situation do. Let me say that again. Us white folks have, generally speaking, greater access to power and resources than people of color in our same situation do. It's a thing. Now let me speak in the eye. The question for me is not, am I racist? I am racist. I think that's where we need to start, at least that's where I need to start, to admit that I am racist. I have it in me, I have it on me by virtue of institutional racism, white privilege, and my own insensitivities over the years. I have come to hate it. I've, I've been able to see it, I've been able to own it, and I have come to hate it. And here's the question that I need to continue to ask myself. Where am I still a racist? For me, I need to own it to get through it, to get past it. What I've just shared may be deeply uncomfortable for some of you. I get that. Let me take a step further. I would love it for you to engage in some personal reflection, some reading, some praying to locate yourself in this opportune moment of history. We have this grace-defined, I, I should say grace-disguised opportunity in front of us. Grace-disguised. None of us would ever have chosen to be here three months in a pandemic, sheltering at home. None of us would have chosen to have this, this picture of national racism on the news um, and people dying. It is an opportunity. God didn't cause any of it. He didn't cause the pandemic. He didn't cause racism or the murder uh, that we witnessed but he is trying to teach us something. He is up to something. And I want myself, I want us to pay attention, to dig our ears, to determine what he's up to. With that said, let's look at what Nehemiah did in one of the most severe crises, crisis moments in his lifetime. Again, the whole chapter was read. I think it was Bill, so thank you, Bill. I would like us to go back into the chapter and list with you some specifics and priority of Nehemiah's response. In verse 2, it says that Nehemiah inquired. His brother came, he asked, what's going on? He inquired. We need to ask questions and we need to listen. I spoke with some non-white friends this last week to inquire how they were doing and to get their perspective and advice. And uh, one referred to me as, as his beige teammate. 
and he gave me some excellent input and, and promised to send along some resources for us. Another one of my friends told me several things, but the thing that I wrote down, the thing that I really heard him say, is that our greatest um, investment that we can make in one another is spending time. He, sp he said spending time, it's our most valuable resource and takes time to really get to know somebody else. Taking time is not quick encounters, you know, to ease a guilty conscience, but a commitment to building ongoing relationships with people that are different than us. Number two, verse four. Nehemiah says, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. In chapter 1, verse 1, it gives the month, the Hebrew month. I think it's chapter 2, verse 1, it gives it another Hebrew month. And so we know that he sat down, he wept and mourned for about four months. And we see the same calling of sitting down and weeping and mourning. We see the same calling as the Sermon on the Mount begins. The Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, begin with acknowledging our spiritual poverty and then coming to mourn over our own sinful or selfish condition as well as mourning over the condition of the world around us. We need to mourn or grieve over the current condition of our country. And that includes not only racism, but also the 110,000 plus COVID deaths in the U.S., and the 400,000 plus deaths around the world. We need to grieve that. I want to quickly introduce a biblical term that most of us have heard, but per perhaps have not understood. The term is lament. One third of the Psalms, that would be 50 of the Psalms, are categorized as songs or psalms of lament. And Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations. It's right after his book, Jeremiah. So what does it mean to lament? Lament is a prayer or prayers that believers offer to a sovereign God when life doesn't fit with what they know to be true about him. Or the, the coming of God's promises seem to be woefully delayed. Psalm 13 is a great example of a song of lament. How long, or, oh, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long must I take comfort in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? Notice that a, a song of lament is, is very, very honest and it's also respectful. So a prayer of lament is a prayer from a place of pain and complete honesty that leads us into a place of trust. But I would say that it could take a while. One author said this, without prayers of lament, 
we would tend to fall off into one of two ditches. Either the ditch of denial, where we say everything's fine, I'm all right, everything's fine, or the ditch of despair, where we say, I can't, I can't do this anymore. In prayers of lament, we take our sorrows to God and we talk to Him about them. And then the third and final one, verse 6, Nehemiah says, Me and my father's house have sinned. And I hope you can see clearly what's happening here. Nehemiah is taking on and he's owning his own sins and the sins of his forefathers. I believe that we need to do the same. To own the sins of our forefathers, whether it's in the church, in our nation. The church as a whole has failed miserably in the areas of justice that include race, sexism, conflict resolution and reconciliation, and I would add immigrant care to that. One of the core beliefs and practices of vital church ministry, we often repeat this, is is that corporate or all church renewal begins with personal renewal. And personal renewal begins with us owning our own issues. That's where it all starts. Owning what we can own. Our own issues. So here's a succinct review of what we see not only in the first chapter of Nehemiah, but in the whole book of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah listened. Nehemiah learned. He took about four months to to pray and to plan. Nehemiah lamented. Nehemiah loved. Not only did Nehemiah lead through the rebuilding of the walls of the desolate Jerusalem, but he also helped to lead a spiritual renewal along with Ezra after the wall was completed, all because of a deep, deep love for God and a deep, deep love for his Jewish brothers and sisters coming back from exile. God has been up to something since the pandemic began. As I said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, it's it's about the removal of our sin through admitting our spiritual poverty, receiving God's grace through faith, restructuring our heart from the inside out, and I would say individually and collectively as the church, and then a whole reversal of values. And we're going to go back into the Sermon on the Mount next weekend. There's been a lot of fluff in the church in America the last many years. The easy believism, the me-centered, me-centered choruses, the lack of doctrinal sermons, and the lack of integrity, which our culture has noticed that our culture is noticing. We've been pushed back to the margins of society. 
That's bad news. You know what the good news is? The Bible was written to people at the margins of society. That's the good news. So as we move towards communion, let me share the second defining moment that shaped me as a man, as a follower of Jesus, and as a pastor. I hope it's going to sum up much of what I've been trying to communicate. And again, I hope this is the beginning of a church-wide dialogue for us. It was the late 1980s. I was pastoring the same church I spoke of earlier. And it was in the middle of the AIDS epidemic. And I decided to take a class from the Gay Lesbian Task Force on the care of AIDS patients. My mother was a hospice nurse, and so I grew up in an environment of um, care and compassion, and I wanted to do something. And as you might imagine, when the two guys who were teaching the class found out I was a pastor, it caused a bit of a stir, and I ended up staying late after some of the sessions to talk to them about God and and gays and, and the care of AIDS patients. And I want to share with you something that I learned from them. It involves the difference between sympathy and empathy. For the sake of time, I'll, I'll condense several conversations into just a couple of learnings. Sympathy says, oh, I am so sorry. Sympathy says, I will certainly pray for you. Sympathy will write a check. Those are good and awesome and appropriate things. Empathy, on the other hand, says, we have a problem, and what are we going to do about it? Empathy is shoulder to shoulder. The word compassion, compassion, to suffer with, very similar. My defining moment happened when I clearly made that distinction between sympathy and empathy. I might have had understood the the definitions in my head, but it all began to make sense in that conversation. How both are necessary in their own time and in their own way, yet they are also distinctive. And then these two guys told me something that broke my heart. They told me that while they had both received sympathy from the church, they had never received empathy. From the church. And friends, that, that just simply has got to change for us as a church. I'm not saying we don't do that. I'm just saying we need more of that. Shoulder to shoulder, we've got a problem. What are we going to do? It's shoulder to shoulder time in the church today. We have work to do. Let's start a conversation that leads to action. And I hope you see that I'm, I'm not just talking about sexual identity issues here. I'm talking about uh, racism and sexism, immigrant issues, reconciliation of all kinds that, that is rooted in the gospel. What does it mean to be rooted in the gospel? It means that Jesus Christ, the great reconciler, is our greatest hope and boast our deepest longing and delight, our most passionate song and message. To be rooted in the gospel means that the good news of God's empowering grace is what defines us as Christians, unites us 
as brothers and sisters, changes us as both sinners and saints, and sends us as God's people on mission. When we are rooted in the gospel, the gospel is exalted above every other good thing in our lives and triumphs over every bad thing that is set against it.